Hey everyone, producer Dave here. Uh, check out our other podcasts. We have The Plex, our flagship show, which is a weekly news roundup. We have Local Love, which is interviews with local Bay Area bands. Uh, speaking of local, we also have Down Ballot, which is our Bay Area local news podcast. And we have How the Tech Are You, which is obviously a tech podcast. Enjoy the show. The internet is a big dumpster. I'm white and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their presses when they're in a room alone with me. And I can drive for any neighborhood I please. At any hour, and the police don't do a thing. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got everything I need. I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree. And I can walk down the streets after dark, no one wants to rape me. And I can get a girl pregnant and just as easily flee. Just like my straight white male dad did to me. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need I've got a pile of broken mirrors And I'm walking under ladders And I'm spilling tons of salt But to me that doesn't matter Cause my skin and my gender and my orientation Are the best things to have if you live in this nation I recommend it highly a penny on the ground I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need Shit's gonna work out for me Cause I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need Hey everybody, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree We do the show live every Wednesday at 7pm Pacific Right here on Twitch, that's twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media, Media, not Medio, Media. I am a flying solo tonight, homo, alono. HK is on adventures. I believe he is on vacation, actually, which is nice. I certainly need a vacation. <clears throat> this will be the probably the last show where it's going to be warm in the studio, actually. It was kind of hot today, but tomorrow it'll be warm out, too, but by 9, 9 p.m. it'll be nice and cool. So if I sound a little tired... It is a combination of the heat and other decisions I've made in the last 24 hours. Anyway, like we've been trying to do, we've been trying to kind of get away from our normal cast of characters. So what I have right now is a, an interview on Reason, that's the libertarian publication, with one Mr. Matt Taibbi. And it's how the left lost its mind. Elon Musk spoon-fed you his cherry-picked information which you must have suspected promotes a slanted viewpoint or at the very least generates another right-wing conspiracy theory. This is Yeah, that's exactly what happened actually. It isn't just a matter of what data was given to these so-called journalists before us now. My name is Matt Taibbi. I'm not a so-called journalist. I've won the National Magazine Award, the IF Stone Award for Independent Journalism, and I've written 10 books, including four New York Times bestsellers. <laughs> Before Matt Taibbi was sparring with Democratic members of Congress on Capitol Hill earlier this year over the Twitter files, he was a darling of the progressive left, 
appearing regularly on shows like Democracy Now!, Bill Moyers, and Rachel Maddow. Matt Taibbi, his new article for Rolling Stone magazine, Why Isn't Wall Street in Jail? The Bush administration, these are some of the people, these are some of the greatest liars in the history of politics. And even they couldn't come up with a connection between Al-Qaeda and, and Saddam Hussein. Though he was always a fierce critic of the Democrats. Oh, it's libertarian Fonzie. This is not Gillespie. I call, I've been calling him libertarian Fonzie for a while. And he never blocked me on Twitter for calling him libertarian Fonzie. So that's great. The rise of Donald Trump suddenly meant that anyone nominally left of center even progressive journalists like Taibbi were expected to support Hillary Clinton unconditionally. So when he attacked her as a sellout, argued that the Russiagate narrative was mostly bullshit, and equated the manipulative tactics of both right and left media personalities, he found himself cold-shouldered by progressives. And Democrats started treating him like a puppet for the right. Do you think it's a legitimate objective of the FBI to stop foreign interference in our elections? I think it's a legitimate objective to stop actual foreign interference. Okay. I mean, I don't know what the difference is, but that's fine. In 2020, Taibbi started publishing his work on Substack and quickly became one of the platform's most popular writers, earning far more revenue than he ever did at Rolling Stone. You yourself posted on your, your um, I guess it's kind of like a web page. I don't quite understand what Substack is, but... He became even more of a pariah by publishing exhaustive reports that documented extensive governmental interference seeking to control what was said on Twitter about COVID-19 and efforts by Russia to influence U.S. elections. Congressional Democrats pilloried him as a fake journalist, a Putin apologist, and a stooge for Elon Musk. He is a stenographer for Elon Musk. That's all the Twitter files was. Remember when we uh, listened to that uh, interview that Sam Harris did with uh, Barry Weiss, and I forget who else about it, where they could only access the Twitter files when Elon said they could on uh, hardware that Elon Musk himself gave them. So it's like, dude, that's stenography. That's not investigative journalism. It's quite obvious that you've profited from the Twitter files. I Very think it's probably way. a wash, honestly. Nope. Then you consider Mr. Musk to be the direct source of all this. No, now you're you're trying to get me to say that he is the source. I I, I, well, I just it, can't answer your is question. Well, he is or he isn't. No, he is the source. This is dumb. Yes, he's yeah. They they all said that he's the source for all this. Journalist. No, he can't because either Musk is the source and he can't talk about it, or Musk is not the source. And if Musk is not the source, then he can discuss. No one has yielded. The gentlelady's out of order. You don't. But he has said is he's not going to reveal his source, and the I fact that Democrats are pressuring him to, to do so is such an We're asking him about his conversation. Reason caught up with Taibbi at Freedom Fest, an annual gathering held this year in Memphis, to talk about. Notice how they real quick. I want to see who out like who this Freedom Fest thing. I think. They've had situations in the past where they've definitely had like neo-Nazis and like anti-vaxxers and stuff speak at it before. Why legacy media is dying and how identity politics are poisoning political discourse. Matt Taibbi, thanks for talking to Reason. It's so great to talk to you again, Nick. Uh, so let's talk about the Twitter files first. That's uh, Nick Gillespie, otherwise known as Libertarian Fonzie. When you went into the, you know, kind of sealed room and things like that, what were you expecting to find? Wait, yeah, yeah, they went into a fucking sealed room uh, to fucking access information that Elon Musk act allowed them to access. 
And then they were like, well, we can't reveal our sources. It's like, no, you already told everybody what your source was. You went to a room where Elon Musk controlled access to information. And then you published the information that he gave you, which he had complete control to access over. Not much. Um, I went into the Twitter files with a very old school, um, antiquated kind of First Amendment conception of what we might find or, you know, or what questions we might answer. Uh, we discussed with uh, Twitter's management the idea of focusing on the suppression of the Hunter Biden story, mainly because um, Mark Zuckerberg had given an interview uh, and had testified before Congress right. in which he suggested that um, the FBI had tipped him off about that story. So I thought, if there were those kinds of communications with Twitter, this might be where we found them. Uh, and I wanted to know- We might find them in the Twitter files, whatever the fuck that means. ...look like, uh, as we discovered there, we, we didn't find them in that case, but we found an enormous quantity of, of, quantity of them elsewhere, and it turned into a much more complicated story than I anticipated. Does it, I mean, like, does the Twitter files really, uh, is it the final nail in the coffin of the idea that there is a clean distinction between the government and the media? You know, because that kind of informed Wait, for did, a long did time. people think that, yeah, that yeah, there was the case before that there was like always a clean disti distinction between the government and the media and that government agencies were just before they would never plant stories in the media or try to manipulate what was published in newspapers and on TV? Did people, were people really as so naive to believe that before? If you think back to like the Pentagon Papers or something, it's like, well, the New York Times is separate from the government and it's not communicating in the way that it seemed like, you know, in the Twitter files, it's like there are tons of people at Twitter. Well, there was an email back then. FBI or whatever, take a look at this. And then various government actors are saying, hey, you really need to look at this and do something about it. I would say that it, it puts the final nail in the coffin of that narrative. I actually feel guilty for being naive about that. Mm -hmm. um, like incredibly naive if you thought there was some kind of firewall between government agencies and uh, legacy media or social media. In the media, my father was, you know, in television and I was around newsrooms most of my childhood. The idea that the FBI might call up and say, hey, you might want to think about not doing this story. Yeah, they did that all the time. That would be crazy. I can't, yeah. I, I couldn't have even imagined an editor or a news director who would have even taken that call, right. uh, you know, in that. Yeah, because they told you if they took that kind of call, they told you specifically because your dad worked there. Way. And we found in the Twitter files all kinds of things that suggested that this relationship was not only uh, tolerated, but that it was ongoing, regular, um, and collusive in a way that was kind of shocking to me. I think what, the what's a specific example of that? A, a great example of this was the um, the Aspen Institute tabletop ex exercise, which was technically not set up by the government. Uh, it was set up by the Aspen Institute, which is funded by the government in collaboration with some um, academic institutions that had been briefed by the FEC and some government agencies. But they all got together uh, before the release of the Hunter Biden story. 
They were briefed by current and former government officials um, who talked about the possibility uh, that a hack and leak story involving Hunter Biden and Burisma might come out, and they kind of war game the possibility. But there was nothing that the Hunter... Anybody can go back and read the uh, New York Post uh, story that was released. It's not. They're like claiming it was some fucking, like, blowing the lid off some shit, and the story just didn't make sense. To do about that story. And then a month later, that story happens. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, if I had been in that room and that story actually happened a month later, I would feel obligated to do a story about that tabletop exercise. I would say, hey, what a weird coincidence that this thing happened. But these people had, you know, an off-the-record arrangement with everybody they were in the room with, and they, um, they kept to it. They kept quiet. And, you know, that's a completely new level of cooperation yeah. and coordination. That No, that happens all the time. People have private conversations. People, powerful people, have private conversations all the time that we're not privy to, and they make agreements with each other all the time that we're not privy to. That's what a private conversation is. I would never have imagined. And, we, and I mean, what did I guess? Is it great? It Probably not. Or did it not to suppress the story? Because that, I mean, this is a slightly different question. Like, was it a Streisand effect where? It, you know, the New York Post publishes something about Hunter Biden a couple of weeks before the election, and people are like, eh. You know, it's the New York Post. But then I remember like going to Twitter when I heard about it and then it was like you can't link to it from Twitter or anything. And that was really chilling. Like that was the first time I felt I was in like an Orwell novel or something mm -hmm. where it's like, what do you mean? Like you can't you can't link to it or discuss it on Twitter. But, you know, I mean, do you think did it work first? And then let's talk about like why they thought it might or might not have. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think that would be worth studying. Yeah, I would, it would be interesting to do some surveys about that and find. I think out. actually, libertarian Fonzie hit the nail on the head where the by trying to by even bringing it up in the way that uh, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and some you know MSNBC types the way they did they Streisand affected it. I think I think libertarian Fonzie hit the nail on the head right there where he said that if if it would have been published. And nobody would have done anything about it. People would have been like, this story is from the New York Post and it doesn't make any fucking sense. Um, what the actual impact of that was, uh, I think overall in the long run, certainly that story got more attention um, than it would have absent this. Yeah. However, um, we're also learning, uh, you know, I think there's more about that story that's going to come out uh, what fairly mean? soon. My understanding is that there are some depositions that are on, uh, underway, that there are things that are happening in Washington where um, some of those committees, uh, you know, that are oversight committees are still looking at that mm -hmm. issue and the stuff that was on the laptop. Because we didn't know a whole lot when that first right. story came out. All we knew was that they found the laptop. They didn't know a whole lot about. Or it might have been three laptops and somehow they were brought to some blind guys. Uh computer repair store in the Northeast when uh, Hunter Biden clearly lived in Los Angeles. Like, just go, go like, I, I encourage anyone listening to this, go read the original story. In fact, there may be edits, go find it on like the Wayback Machine or whatever from the day it was published. Read it and tell me if it makes any sense. Just tell me if any of it makes any fucking sense. Whether any of those emails were meaningful, um, all we knew is that we had some some racy looking pictures. It was embarrassing. 
Um, but um, you know, my understanding, not so, not embarrassing. I heard it's uh, quite nice. I haven't looked for it myself, but I heard it's quite nice. Some hardcore investigation to to find out whether there's anything behind that, and that process in many cases takes years. I would just say they probably were effective installing that. Yeah. You know? um, also, yeah, like somebody in chat said, for 24 hours they throttled it for 24 hours and then apologized. There's the alternate um, story where they told people in mainstream uh, media that this was Russian disinformation. And I think that was effective with Biden voters like that story. I also don't think it was a, I don't think it was Russian propaganda. I think it was, it's that shit smells like Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani. Um, had an effect in getting people to ignore the idea that this was anything worth paying attention to. <laughs> More Rudy Giuliani than Steve Bannon, because again, it doesn't make any fucking sense kind of started your career in Russia, you know, in, in the post-Soviet uh, world. Was this kind of collusion between the government and news, was that taken for granted there? I mean, is this, are we looking like, you know, Russia and I don't know, you know, in the late 90s or something? Yeah, like 1999. Shit, in the late 90s. Yeah, like that doesn't happen now in Russia. Now that uh, Putin's there, he's cleaned house and there's no no collusion, no no government pressure on any media outlets to report or not report anything, and nobody's plane ever gets pushed out a window. You first started to see directly, um, you know, the news stations resembling um, basically press releases for the Kremlin. In the in the mid to late Yeltsin years, the press was sort of stratified and fractured. Each of the different news companies was, was basically backed by a different mob inst uh, or mafia interest. Um, and they all had their own ties to Yeltsin, but uh, basically you were looking at the point of view of this or that ol oligarch when you watched the news. When Putin came to power, one of the first things he did is he really consolidated the media landscape um, he cracked down on um, companies like NTV, which is one of the last independent stations, and he got it so that there was basically no dissent in Russian media. And it's beginning to feel a little bit like that. It Although it's press. it's not because like if you you know if if you dissent from you know Biden, you're going to start eating polonium without knowing it, right? So right. Yes. Can you, right. you get uh, it's not even dissent from Biden. See, this is a lot of things are going to get conflated here because Matt, that's what Matt's been doing for a while. Um, not for nothing. It, this all he started acting this way shortly after uh, people went back and read some of his old work about some of the uh, some of the ways he was treating women when he was a uh, younger and uh, a younger journalist. And they were criticizing him for that. And then all of a sudden he, uh, not all of a sudden, but not, not too terribly long after he started, uh, acting a little uh, different, which is not an uncommon, uh, arc that we, not an uncommon arc for us to see, but he's going to conflate a couple things here. One, he's going to conflate what we call cancel culture with censorship. Um, cancel culture is just you going and saying your shit and then other people telling you to shut the fuck up. Um, and that's all in the game, baby. He's also going to conflate things like Twitter and Facebook downranking certain stories or certain types of stories with government censorship, which it's not. News organizations or aggregators have always done that. Um, I do that. Every, every Twitch channel you watch, if they cover current events, they decide what to talk about and what not to talk about. Now, I know that Twitter is a bigger organization and the uh, 
it's all user generated content, but I, I don't see it as being in that entirely different. But those are going to be the two main conflations that we're going to see here. Discuss the, like, what are the steps that are happening? You know, and it's not like against the media's interest or, or, or against media actors. They're like bringing it on. And Twitter and Facebook was filled with people who had been in an administration, then moved there to do like, uh, you know, communications or strategy. And it goes back and forth. Like, how are we getting to a place where Twitter, which, you know, its first big glory was in helping to uh, kind of platform the Arab Spring. And like mm -hmm. it was gonna, it was great because it was anti-government and it was anti-censorship. And now it's, you know, fucking like doing the, the it's, you know, the towel boy for what? a particular vision. I don't want to say the deep state, but like of a- No, 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 it's a towel boy for a particular billionaire now. Kind of mainstream ideological politics. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. Um, there's obviously a huge difference yeah. between what happened in Russia. I mean, I I knew people like Anna Politkovskaya who, you know, got murdered yeah. um, under the Putin regime. There were a couple of others I knew who had, had some pretty unfortunate fates. Nobody's getting shot in their doorway, right. you know, in the United States. But that's actually one of the more depressing parts about People are getting shot in their doorway. It's just that the cops are doing it voluntary what's like going for on. sometimes no uh, reason at all the overall the overarching narrative that we um collectively uh, working on the twitter files decided uh, was happening was that there was a huge um infrastructure that had been built up for counter-proliferation counter-terrorism within the government um it was aimed at the messaging apparatus of groups like isis um to prevent, uh, you know, the successful recruitment of white kids in suburban England and California. Well, when, you know, that threat dissipated, they moved over to populism in the United States. And because as you say, Twitter, which um, had been this incredible force for, you know, anarchy and the, you know, the, um, irrepressible political urges of the population in the Arab Spring. I don't think the people involved, I don't think most of the people involved in Arab Spring were anarchists. Kind of came out again with Trump. I mean, Trump bypassed the, the uh, ordinary media in 2016 and his um, amazing insight was that I can just use my own Twitter account and I'll have much more reach than all of these different stations combined. And I think that freaked out a lot of people in power. And, and what we saw in the Twitter files essentially was a long um, period of rollback, uh, which they achieved through various different means. Did they do that? And I realize you, you may not be in a position to uh, know, but like, did they do that against the wishes of people like Jack Dorsey and the top kind of creators of Twitter, you know, because there's one narrative, which is that what's going wrong in kind of social media companies, it's not the people at the top or who started it, but it's like mid-level managers who are- Oh, it's a deep state narrative about these companies. It's not these vision. And of course, Nick Gillespie, libertarian Fonzie would think this, right? Because Jack Dorsey is a titan of industry, right? So it's not really, it's not him. If there's a problem at all, it's got to be all those kind of middle management people, you know, the bureaucrats all like you know what we are good liberal slash progressives and 
you know, we're really scared of like America. And so we are going to censor people. And, you know, Dorsey and these other guys are kind of walking around the C-suite like Howard Hughes. They don't and they, they're like, oh, you know, I, we don't have any power. I mean, who was who made these kind of operative decisions? It's funny. Um, before the first Twitter files, I had one fairly senior Twitter executive joke to me that Jack Dorsey was more like the company's spirit animal than its CEO. Yeah. Um, I had talked to Jack before. I, I, I like him. Yeah. I think he's uh, at heart uh, got a lot of sympathy for uh, free speech principles. I think yeah. they're important to him. Yeah. Um, but if you look at the Twitter files, you see that he's not in the loop of a lot of so, these. So uh, one of the things, and he's not going to bring this up, I don't think, because he's stupid or <clears throat> uninformed jack was off running a company that was actually making money he was the, the ceo of both square and twitter at the same time for a, a good amount of time and so he was off working at square where they were actually turning a profit um, so that's what was going on a lot of the time key decisions uh, the things that happened uh, particularly around that one incident um, involving the hunter biden story he was definitely not involved in that. Uh, one of the weird ways that I know about that is because I, I found, believe it or not, uh, on my first day looking at the Twitter files that Jack Dorsey had forwarded to Vijaya God, the woman who was basically running things, um, one of my articles complaining about um, uh, you know the, the censorship of that article. He was definitely a free speech advocate, but he was not... Um, he, he really wasn't at the helm when they came to the decision to take Trump off the platform. Um, you know, I, I think he was dragged kicking and screaming to that decision. And uh, most of the company was was against him at that point. Yeah. Um, with the uh, but that was like, that's a pretty big statement. Does he have any like any reason? Like, why does he believe that? Russiagate or, you know, the Russiagate narrative is that the Russians wanted and correct me or, or, you know, massage this into what you believe, you know, is that Russia was proactive. They wanted Trump to win and they were going to end more than that. It was also that the Trump campaign was actively working with them. Um, and that seemed is that like the hinge point of like we're going to look back and there's like media before 2016 and after and how did how did the Russiagate story spin out because I mean there have been tons of congressional investigations and others and like they've really come up with nothing in terms of collusion right but what but that's because there's so the the word collusion is being so narrowly defined here people work for Trump were in fact convicted of things approaching espionage i don't remember the exact types of things they were uh, convicted of but trump pardoned a bunch of them too so they had to admit guilt right so why is it you know why did it get started and then why is it persisting after like you know just we got nothing except you know wish or a dream a desire that it's true well, the Russiagate story, oddly enough, became um, sort of involuntarily uh, very important in my life personally. I think it's really the reason I ended up leaving 
mainstream media, um, where I was very happy. I had a, a you had the job everybody wanted, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, who who doesn't want to be the campaign reporter for Rolling Stone right. magazine, right. right? It's like the coolest thing in the world. It's one of the iconic gigs. I think he was forced yeah. out of Rolling Stone. Um, but when the uh, the Rushgate story happened, as you mentioned, there were really two different storylines. One was that Russia had interfered somehow, and they had a couple of different inflection points that they were looking at. There was the hack, um, then there was working with WikiLeaks and you know some other things. Uh, but the more important narrative that I thought um, they were pushing was this idea of collusion. And I never saw anything that indicated anything like hard proof for that. And but again, uh, it's just depending when you when you define the word collusion so narrowly as to be like like a like a scene from the Americans or something, then yeah, sure, I guess like you you can't you can't prove it, but you would never be able to prove it then. At first, all I said, I wrote a couple of very gentle columns in the beginning saying. This looks a little bit like the WMD mistake, right. where we have an awful lot of anonymous um, state officials who are telling us things that we can't reproduce in the laboratory independently. Like, there's no way to check this story, right? But everybody was going for it. And I think, you know, it's as simple as people thought everything was permitted in pursuit of getting rid of Donald Trump. I mean, there was a very influential article in the New York Times in August of 2016 called uh, Trump is testing the norms of objectivity in journalism. And uh, the columnist Jim Rutenberg argued, we can't just be true anymore. We have to be true to history's judgment. Yeah. And so <laughs> that's and actually that's a pretty like, great word. but Trump that's a, okay, that's it. First of all, it's an opinion piece. This is an opinion piece that he's talking about. And that was sort of poetic flowery, flowery language that was being used as is often used in opinion pieces, if they're any good. Is that, is that good or bad that that's the standard? Who knows? But that's a, a, an, a readable and interesting to read opinion piece is going to have some <clears throat> flowery language and some metaphor. Trump and was, not for nothing, that's not, a, that's not bad. That's a pretty good line, right? Uh, you know, it's just so weird. Like everybody's like, he is destroying norms. Therefore, we are going to throw over our norms pro preemptively <laughs> right. to get rid of him. And it's like, okay, yeah, whatever. I mean, it, like, it worked great in Iraq, right? Preemptive war, preemptive war against Trump. Has but these are not the same thing. These aren't even it, it, remotely it's similar. Like they're incapable of learning anything, you know, from any of these mistakes. And and with the Russiagate thing, it was like it was happening in slow motion the entire yeah. time. I mean, they kept stepping in it one story after another. And instead of walking it back or, um, you know, re-examining the evidence, yeah. uh, they would double down. They would say, what okay. I realize this is, you know, asking to psychologize, but like, why was, why were mainstream people, and, and it's, you know, mostly it's kind of like liberal, centrist liberals, uh, legacy media types, but also, you know, I don't know, like people in newer publications, like they wanted that to be true. And it, it was like, I'm old enough to remember reruns of I Dream of Genie or like <laughs> Three's Company, where it's like every week, Mr. Roper is finally going to catch Jack Tripper in a homosexual tryst. And then Billy it never Gonzalez, happens. They're going to get off. Yeah. Track. And like, you know, Dr. Bellows is, get, you know, this time he's got Tony down to rights. Wait, that, that never guy's happen. never watched Three's Company. 
happen. And you would think 15 times in, you'd be like, yeah, maybe I, you know, let's write a different plot. That guy doesn't know the right. premise of Three's Company. Exactly. You still enjoy the show, though. That's yeah, that's thing. true. That's true. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and um, you know. And they're still doing it, right? They, they are still doing it. Uh, if you go back and look, you can see why it was compelling television. Yeah. You can see why MSNBC shot to the top of the ratings for the first yeah. time in 20 years. Uh, this looked like, you know, the end of the world. This was the Millerite prediction, yeah. you know, of, you know, the world was going to come to the to an end. So I hate to, like, get stuck in the Three's Company fucking Narnia hole, but the point of Three's Company was that the, the, the landlord actually didn't want men and women who weren't um, uh, married cohabitating. And... Jack and uh, the, the two gals, they were friends. They were just platonic friends, as people are. And so they just lied and said he was gay because they wanted the fucking place. And it was going to happen on live TV, and you better not turn it off because, you know, it might happen while we're on the air. Right. They would even do, if you watch the, the tosses between <laughs> yeah, one he... show to another. <laughs> Somebody in chat, I usually don't, uh, usually don't. And for the audio listeners, you'd have to check this out. Somebody in chat just said, why is uh, Matt Taibbi dressed like a Russian teenager? Um, they would sort of guide you from one show to the next and warn you that you better not turn the dial because between Lawrence O'Donnell and Rachel, it might happen, you know? And um, this was very compelling TV. I mean, I, yeah. I, I understand yeah, yeah. why they did it, but the problem was, you know, you, you were setting yourself up, you were writing checks that you were gonna have to cash at some. Now, this part isn't wrong. Um, I think uh, Rachel Maddow especially, especially burned down her career over this stuff. Just covering every little fucking rumor and every little tiny thing that came out like it was fucking breaking news i think she burned her career down over this stuff and she didn't have to do that she could have covered it in a, in a more responsible way but she didn't and she i think she audience capture i think she suffered from audience capture not suffered from it she allowed it to happen right she wasn't hurting for money or an audience and, you know, that's a very dangerous place to be. I mean, one of the things I always liked about journalism is that when you're done with the story, it's done. You're, you know, you go to sleep and you don't have to think about it anymore. This thing was like the sword of Damocles like hanging over the whole business. And I, I don't understand what people were thinking. I know a lot of the old timers were were very worried about it but but they're kind of all gone they're right? kind of, they're all yeah. gone exactly well that's what being an old timer is you um, retire you know, yeah. with the is you know does what's interesting is that russiagate was primarily among liberals who you know and none of this i guess is true but like during the cold war it was like well the conservatives were the real americans and they understood that the soviet union and and you know by extension the russian people were evil and you can't really do business with evil. And the liberals were more like, no, you know, we have to work peacefully. And now it's weird because it's liberals who are like Russia, 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 like they're evil. <laughs> Russia, know? Russia, Russia. That's a, <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, like shit lives. Like I didn't do any of that. You can go back, but we were doing podcasts mostly. It was uh, um, audio only at the time. Um, but I actually kind of drew a line in the sand with, the people that I was working with and some still uh, are on the shows that I'm just not doing that shit. I'm not covering the fucking play by play that if something actually happens, we'll cover it. But the, the play by play is fucking bullshit. Now we have conservatives who are like, you know, Putin, you know, give Putin a chance or something like, uh, you know, how do, how do you explain like, yeah, but Putin has people's airplanes pushed out of windows. You're 
flips. It's like, you know, what, every million years or something, the, the North and South Pole flip. <laughs> right. And then you, but then it feels like, okay, it's always been this way. Like, where is that coming from? Well, I originally thought it was because I had gone crazy, like yeah. that something was wrong with me personally. I think that was a common. I mean, that's part of it. Of a lot of people, like it must be me. Like this, this must all make sense somewhere um, outside of my understanding. But if you look back, I can't remember which one of them said it. I feel like it's either Jim Clapper or Ted Lieu. But there was a prominent politician who said something like the Russian is genetically predisposed to deceive or something like that. And like this, yeah, who said that? I I would like to see. I I I would I would like to get a verification of who did like um. Uh, basically disinformation phrenology about russian people made and and it flew all over social media and it wasn't condemned it was like you know sort of upheld um i would be willing to bet if it was like a person like a rational person a, a person who has some experience it would be that they have a long history of being good at propaganda and deception versus they are genetically predisposed to lie to you get the fuck out of here Again, as you say, back in the Soviet days, one of the principal liberal um, ideas was that, you know, the, the Russian person is not guilty. It's, right. It's there was leader. this Sting song, you know, Russian mothers love their children, too. Or, right. Exactly. Yeah, that yeah. was that was Sting. And, yeah. um, you know, Richard Pryor said, you know, hey, if you don't have that hat on, I don't know. Who, I don't know. If the Russian don't have the hat on. I don't know who the fuck he is. Yeah. Right. right, like, right. They're, like they're just people just like us. Yeah. Um, that all went out the window when this started. And why? Wait, what? I have no idea. I'm sorry. Uh, we're a lot of liberals saying that the, now the average Russian person is bad because I'm down with kicking the shit libs, right? Like I am down with that. I don't mean literally kicking them. Don't kick anybody unless they kick you first and you have to do it to run away or whatever. But I'm down with like kicking these people. But I don't think that the, the narrative was that the just the average individual in Russia was bad. Like coming out of um, even like, especially not like MSNBC and Rachel Maddow during this. I don't think that that I, I'm I'm wondering where he thinks that narrative existed. People were oversampling and calling people like Russian apologists and Russian plants and Russian, you know, that they were people were spreading Russian propaganda when in fact they were just stupid and wrong or, you know, overly conspiratorial or whatever. But I don't think there were people, I don't think there was this narrative. I'm, I would hate to, I would, I hate to say that it didn't exist because it, you can't like universally say that you can find anybody saying any old dumb shit on Twitter, but I don't think it was like a part of a major mainstream narrative that now just your average Russian person was bad, like your average babushka or whatever. You, let's talk a little bit about leaving Rolling Stone. Uh, when, when did you leave exactly? Uh, I guess I left in 2019. Right. And you, you went to Substack immediately. You were one of the original people, which also was fascinating when Substack started. And then when it came out, they were paying some people. Mm -hmm. Then there was like, again, from kind of legacy media or like cub reporters who were pissed they weren't getting 200 grand advances. We're like, that's wrong. Like, why should people be paid to do independent journalism? Right? It was bizarre. <laughs> but what led to the rupture with Rolling Stone? Because like you were saying, I mean, you know, that what a great position. I think he was probably pitching a bunch of this weird shit to them and they didn't want to do it. And so he left. 
Um, you know, it's a, it's a coveted slot. Rolling Stone, it's weird because, yeah, what, it started in 67, um, but it quickly became like mainstream publication, mainstream journalism. What led to the rupture there? Yeah, first of all, I love Rolling Stone. I, I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for it. I think it had um, a couple of really long heydays mm -hmm. where it did unbelievable work. Yeah. Um, it was great as music journalism for a long time. It, it was innovative in bringing in, um, Hunter Thompson's style of writing uh, to political journalism, and I think you know that's become iconic now right uh they brought pg o'rourke in yeah. uh then the, you know when i was there in the early 2000s uh and mid 2000s the owner jan wenner um was absolutely against a lot of the stuff that i wrote uh, because i was reporting on financial corruption that didn't look good for the democratic party um sometimes but he was cool with it. He's, you know, it, that was a rare thing. Like in journalism, it's not often when your boss says, I hate this, but go for it. You know, um, that's what makes a magazine great. And, but that started to change. I think after Trump, everybody's tolerance for, um, you know, sort of exploring different points of view kind of dried up. And I didn't leave because I was pressured or pushed out the door. It was really more um, that I had a sense that there was something more lucrative and more rewarding out there oh, yeah. on, on the inter independent front. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, that makes sense that <clears throat> he was pitching stuff to them. They're like, this stuff's crazy. And then Substack came along and offered him a bunch of money. I mean, that does, this isn't, you don't have to, there's, there doesn't have to be a big blow up here. So Substack. are you making more money on Substack than you were for Rolling Stone? A lot more. Yes. Really? Can you say how much more? Like, I don't want to say it. How, I, how make I, us all feel bad, not just me, but the camera guys. For Let's just say that I'm making many times over more than I was making at Rolling Stone. Yeah. What, do you, what accounts for that? I mean, part of it is Substack. I mean, the code they kind of cracked was allowing people to be able to easily monetize an audience, right? But, you know, what, I mean... How, how do you account for like the idea? So basically what you showed, and you know, I think Matt Iglesias leaving Vox has done this. Um, I think Glenn Greenwald. God, Matt Iglesias since he left Vox has lost his fucking mind. That guy, I don't know if anybody noticed it, but he was going around like on Twitter post posting license plates of people who were parked backwards, like on a suburban street one day or some shit. Like, you know how you're supposed to park the direction that the street is going? Well, some people were parked backwards and he was just going around doxing those people's license plate numbers on Twitter because he was fucking mad about it. It was fucking absolutely unhinged behavior. He started The Intercept and then was like, God, I hate this place. And the feelings were mutual. But like when you get to a place where a writer like you somehow, if you're making, you know, I don't know, five times what you were making at Rolling Stone, you were carrying a ton of people at Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. Um, like what, what's the appeal do you think like for you unbound? Well, there was a couple of things. One, um, any writer who's ever worked for editors and I've benefited massively from the editors yeah. I've had, like, you know, Will Dana, Eric Bates, right. I had great editors at Rolling Stone and, um, you know, I, I would never say that they're bad for a writer, right. but there is something to be said for when you turn 50, um, and you want to write what you want to write about, uh, and there's nobody to say no, that feels pretty good. And sometimes that comes out in the writing too, yeah. by the Do way. You, are you edited now or is it like 
I mean, or just copy editing or something? Uh, yeah, we do copy editing. Sometimes yeah. we do fact checking. It depends yeah. on what kind sometimes of. Sometimes we do fact I mean, checking. <laughs> well, thanks, dude. Sometimes, I mean, I'm live and sometimes we do fact checking here too. Fast, <laughs> I, I totally, and I'm 10 years older, I think, than you are uh, roughly. So I get that, but it's also, I, as an editor, I like, yeah, you know, my best work was done when I had to explain myself to a pre-reader on some level. Right, right. There is some of that, you know, I mean, like on, on one level, yes, I would love to be writing, working with an editor, um, but you know, A, it's an expense, B, um, there's a speed element now to uh, internet publishing that is new. Yeah. Um, even a delay of an hour uh, can be consequential in how, in, um, how well a piece <clears throat> does. And that, that's- That's insane. That's insane that he thinks that like a delay of an hour is con consequential enough that you don't want another set of eyes on your work. I mean, I don't always have another set of eyes on my work on my blog, but I mean, go read my blog. It's not like I'm breaking news. Different. So How do you describe your audience? Like, um, you know, your, your Substack subscribers, like, can you give kind of a psychographic of them? What, you know, who are the people who are reading you and paying you, you know, gratefully out of their own pockets, you know, tons of dollars? Yeah. So my overall list, which includes the non-paying people, I mean, it's, you know, it's around 400,000, 400 something thousand um, subscribers now. And it's funny, originally, um, I would say they were all sort of center lefty uh, people who knew me from Rolling Stone. But now this is a very diverse uh, audience that I have. I have hardcore Trump supporters. I have uh, lots and lots of independents who are like disaffected hippies from the 60s who are, who are tons of MRAs, Elon stands full of, you know, anger about what's happened to the Democratic Party. Um, I have libertarians. I have people who, uh, you know, have never been a part of any political movement. It's really interesting, actually, because at Rolling Stone, my audience was at, was relatively homogenous. Yeah. Um, and that's not the case here. How um, you you mentioned Jan Wenner, you know, who is kind of like a archetypal baby boomer, right? And mm -hmm. a late sixties boomer, who among other things was, you know, one of those guys who, you know, is like I'm in favor of free speech, no matter what. Um, one of your most recent pieces, or you know, and like if you read the headlines of your subsect of, like one is where have all the liberals gone? Another is get off the First Amendment's lawn. Uh, why Julian Assange must be freed? The elite war on free thought. Like something has happened. Yeah, it's a oh, grift. This is all that grift. This is like every. This is like people are being silenced. It's that grift, and most people, very very rarely, are people silenced. And people who broadly call themselves liberals or progressives, where generationally up through probably Gen X, that was like, if not the most important issue, like free speech, Uber Allahs, then it was like in the top three. For younger people, maybe it, it doesn't seem to be as important. Um, do you agree with that? And if so, well, so this is some get off my lawn shit. Younger people who are liberal and progressive may have the exact same political commitments as you, or like free speech is is more of a problem than it is a solution. 
I'm less in tune with what's going on with people who are under 30 and how old are you right now? I'm, well, I'm less in tune with, whoa, that, okay. Thanks dude. 53. Okay. Yeah. Um, in my generation growing up, uh, I didn't know anybody who wasn't relatively a free speech absolutist, right? right. Like everybody I knew is free speech absolutist. No, that's, that there's nobody who's a free speech absolutist. Free speech absolutism would include like conspiracy, uh, conspiracy to commit murder, for example, murder for hire, because it's just speech. Zappa and D. Snyder and the parent against yeah. the Parents Music Resource Center. We were all in favor of NWA when they, you know, every one of those controversies that you knew. Yeah, two were live all, crew. Yeah. Like, yeah. Two live crew. The even the tape delay for Richard Pryor when he went yeah. on Saturday Night Live, right? Stuff like that. Um it was automatic. It was a but the tape delay there was because of the FCC that the people who fund Saturday Night Live didn't want to get a massive fine. Defining issue for for a generation, um, but there I think has been a schism, you know, within former liberals. Uh, it's. It's clear to me between boomers and Gen Xers like me, you know, I mean, you brought up Jan Wenner. There was actually a moment at Rolling Stone that I think was kind of significant where um, in the primary season uh, for 2016, Jan did a big official Rolling Stone editorial supporting Hillary Clinton. And I was a little bit shocked by that, given the, the magazine's history. Yeah. And I went to Jan personally. I said, hey, would you mind if I wrote a dissenting editorial? And I wrote one in favor of Bernie. And Jan's whole um, idea there was that the world has changed since uh, 1972. George McGovern got beat. Um, we were wrong then. Yeah. Um, we have to win now and winning is the most important thing and so forget about idealism and all that stuff we cared about in the 60s and 70s and and all that i mean i thought this is supposed to be a magazine for young people theoretically right, like right. you know how is that yeah. gonna fly but it did you know um and i i was a little bit <clears throat> surprised by um the reaction to both my editorial and his that's fascinating that he, as a boomer, is like, yeah, free speech. Oh, you know, we can leave it. Um, Wait, is that that that's a mis? That's I don't even know really much about the person they're talking about here. But that's got to be a mischaracterization of of something he either said or didn't say. Younger generations seem less enamored of that, and that's. I mean, one of the things I think about people, you know, squarely on the progressive left, like you, uh, Tom Frank, Thomas Frank, mm -hmm. Glenn Greenwald, et cetera, like you've all. What? No, those are grifters. Over the past few years have articulately, you know, broken with identity politics. Can you talk a little bit about that? And No, yeah. all politics is identity politics. Matt Taibbi does a version of identity politics. It's just that his tribe is a different kind of tribe than people are used to. His tribe is people like himself, Barry Weiss, Michael Schellenberger, um, to some extent like Brett and Eric Weinstein, like the IDW types. Um, that's that's his new tribe. So that's still identity politics. Again, in terms of policy commitments, I don't know that you're that different, but you know, why don't identity politics resonate with you? 
I don't believe a lot of the identity politics that are being proffered by the current version of the Democratic Party are genuine. And my first uh, experience with this, where I really, really thought about this, was when I was following Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016. And there was a moment in that campaign where he first started to really draw blood against Hillary. Right. Um, you might remember it was like in February uh, or late January of 2016. He was hammering her on her ties to Goldman Sachs and other banks. The New York Post, interestingly, did this, um, published this big list of all of her speech commitments, and it was kind of amazing. And she wouldn't release the transcripts, right? She wouldn't the release speech, the yeah. transcript. Well, do you do you think like every time that a, a prominent figure gives a speech somewhere, do you think that there's a transcript that they just have? I thought that was stupid because I don't presume that every time I don't care who you are that every time you go give a speech somewhere that you. Uh, leave with a transcript or that you have access to a transcript of your speech. I presume if you're like on this, on like the speaking circuit, you don't have a transcript of every, every speech you ever made. But, um, I mean, even the schedule was amazing. She was doing $300,000 in the morning and then flying to someplace and doing 400 Gestad grand. Gestad or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. The inner circle of the Bilderbergers or whatever. And they try the Bilderbergers, the Bilderbergers, uh, these people, they're so stupid. They think the Bilderbergs, they think that's like a family, but that's literally just the name of a conference. I mean, there might've been a family named Bilderberg, but they're, they, they like sort of use it almost interchangeably with like the way people use like the Rothschilds or the Rockefellers or whatever. Like it's a fucking rich family. It's the name of the fucking hotel they meet at, right? It's the Bilderberg hotel. Everything to hit back and nothing worked until she said, if we break up the banks tomorrow, will that end racism? Yeah. And Bernie was paralyzed by that. You yeah. know, Bernie's an old school. Um, He's a real commie. I mean, and I, I mean that like where it's class and everything else is a distraction, right? That, you know, you know, you, you know, capitalists will use race in order to keep the workers from realizing, no, they're all on the same side. Well, uh, at, I would say I almost wish he was that yeah. because, you know, Bernie also marched and, you know, in, in yeah. for a civil rights movement in the 60s. And, and is that bad that he did? He did that. He was terrified of the idea yeah. that he might be accused of race racism. Right. It it mortified. Well, he's not racist. It really slow. Bernie down. Sanders isn't a racist guy. I think <clears throat> and I don't want to get too deep into this. I think what happened in his campaign in 2016 is that he I don't think when he started, he thought he had a chance. And it was too late in the game by the time his campaign figured out that they had a chance for them to do the appropriate outreach into, for example, the black communities in the South. And so he got clobbered in the South. And I think that's what happened in 2016. Campaign battle. Yeah, I, there was also that moment, I think it might have been in Seattle or something, where he was almost literally pushed off the stage mm -hmm. by a couple of black activists. No, that was, that was at fucking Netroots Nation in San Jose. I was there. Like, we need to be talking about racial concerns, not... Yeah, that was at Netroots Nation in San Jose. Right, not your class. That may have happened anywhere. elsewhere, but that happened at Netroots Nation in San Jose, California. And it happened before he ran. I don't know if it happened again while he was running, but he did the gracious thing and just stepped off the stage. Where that is, right? And that, and that was when they started to... Um, sort of demonize the white working class, right? right? Which is a brilliant strategic move. Yeah. 
also in interestingly, it, it was the exact opposite of what the Clintons had done yeah. in the 90s. You know, the Clintons' whole strategy was let's peel off a little bit of that white working class. Yeah, and we feel their pain. We feel their pain, right? And and that's, you know, they just got over the finish line doing that. And now they... Um, so we can add to the sins of Hillary Clinton that she also injected identity politics. I think so. I think I think that she was... injected identity politics. They um, that they... Nothing was working for them. I mean, if you if you read those books, there, one one of the books about the Hillary campaign, there's a hilarious chapter where they couldn't come up with a slogan because they didn't even know what they stood for. Like they were they were told. Well, no, it's actually it's even if time. you know what you stand for, it's hard to come up with a slogan because like what if you stand what you stand for is complicated, like neoliberal claptrap is complicated, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and but this. You know, this whole idea of identity politics being something that they could lord over somebody like Bernie, right. who was, you know, a legitimately an oppositional movement and who was drawing on this anger, the same anger that Trump was. Uh, no, it was uh, this 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 thing I don't like either. Some of the same economic anxieties, maybe. But Bernie, Bernie's campaign was not in any way. In any way leveraging people's racial animus. It worked. It stopped him in his tracks. Um, the, no, no, no. Uh, what happened to Bernie in 2016 was self-inflicted because I don't think his campaign thought they could win. And so they were running an issue campaign and then they got clobbered in the South. You know, let's talk a little bit about uh, Julian Assange. Mm -hmm. Speak, Hillary hated Julian Assange because she, uh, among other things, Felt embarrassed by him, you know, with the. You know who else hated Julian Assange? Almost all of his staff who quit shortly before he got himself arrested for allegedly sexually assaulting someone. They all left. A hell of his staff left at WikiLeaks because he became Julian Assange. They said that he changed. There's a great documentary on it. I forget the name of it. If somebody can find the documentary, if somebody remembers it or whatever, or seen it, and can uh, maybe drop it in the Discord or something. WikiLeaks dump, uh, you know, from Chelsea Manning, uh, you know, and on from that. How do you, how do you make sense of journalists who actually don't think that Julian Assange should be like free to walk the planet? I mean, it's it, it, stunning because these are always the same people. I, yeah, I, I think if his uh, if his sexual assault allegations, if those charges were dropped, then he should be just a free person because he's not really been charged with any crimes otherwise times in the washington post were so brave publishing you know, stuff that someone else got that they they got they hacked is fine as if you if you um, hire hackers maybe or if you hire uh, uh, computer security people or whatever to break into somebody's system now you've committed conspiracy but if you just get the information and publish it you're not you're, you've done nothing wrong so i i i agree here but it's but i don't I'm not like a Julian Assange stan. I think he's probably a piece of shit. Pushing back against the Vietnam War, publishing the Pentagon Papers. Yeah, and, and even publishing Assange at one yeah. point, yeah. right? Um, I remember doing um, public service announcements with other journalists. Uh, I did one that was, um, you know, where everybody had to stand up and say, I am Bradley Manning. It was Bradley yeah, Manning right. back then. Uh, but there were a whole you lot could of people. You just use the media. current name. 
mean, you just use Chelsea. In, in that public service announcement. But I mean, if you're quoting yourself in the past, um, if you're quoting yourself in the past, that's fine, I suppose. But he also didn't. As everybody at that time believed that, of course, this is right. You know, we're, we're exposing war crimes. What could be wrong with that? Yeah, and th there was no question that the, the files were true, like the information was accurate. Nobody had any, uh, there's never been an issue of factuality. I don't, not that I know of with, with WikiLeaks. There are some other- Well, because WikiLeaks, that I, I mean, that's a stupid statement because WikiLeaks tends not to make a lot of claims, right? They just publish what they get. You know, I think are legitimate, but with factuality, no. But the amazing thing about the reaction that journalists have had since the indictment is the total inability to, to see how this relates to the future of journalism. I mean, they're threatening this guy with 175 years in prison for doing basically the same thing that every national security journalist does every day. Um, you know, they're talking about uh, conspiracy to um, retain national defense information or uh, obtaining... Yeah, this is bullshit. If, he, if, if the, the WikiLeaks organization didn't basically hire somebody to go acquire this information, then yeah, they, they've done nothing wrong. I, I agree here. Well, that happens all the time. I mean, you, if they paid a bounty on it or whatever, it gets a little dicey there. Classified things all the time. When we my understanding is that they don't pay bounties. That's going to be a crime you can go to jail for 10 years for, and they're going to enforce that. How can you do reporting anymore? And everybody's all for it. Does that disappear if Trump disappears? I mean, is this all kind of an epiphenomenon of Trump is so uniquely awful and, you know, and you have people, Hunter Thompson, actually, I guess said this more with George W. Bush, but that like, you know, Nixon was bad. Nixon, you know, the scumbag of the universe was bad, but George W. Bush is really bad. And I mean, is it just, I mean, I don't know, is it like old manism or something where it's like Nixon was bad, but Trump is the end of the world. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the Obama administration didn't feel like it had the juice to indict um, Assange as much as they wanted to, right. um, but that after Trump got elected, ironically enough, it was Trump's own Justice Department that did it. But you know, politically, there was a lot of support for that after this story in 2016 about you know uh, WikiLeaks possibly working with the Russians. Again, legally, it doesn't matter because right. the case is about an earlier time period. Yeah. People don't think that way anymore though um so but i think you're right i think i think absent trump there this wouldn't be happening i think joe right? biden could generate a lot of goodwill by <clears throat> by i don't know you're not supposed to really get involved in justice department business but by saying that it's the you know the policy of the white house or whatever to that that they're not interested in charging julian assange with any crimes i don't even know how that works because i know that there's supposed away. to be like separation of powers then or is the threat of the next trump enough to kind of you know keep huffing this type of anti first amendment or like where free speech is free speech is negotiable now going forward but nobody's anti first amendment the first amendment says first of all it's the, the the separation of separation of church and state is first there you know the uh, congress shall enact no laws respecting the establishment of a religion and there should be no religious test and it goes on to say that Congress can't abridge speech or the press. Okay. Everybody likes that, I think. I feel like that poll's very high. Approaching 100%.
main things and we found in the Twitter files was that if it's not Trump, it's something. There's yeah. always demon acts that um, they're warning audiences away from. And they always come up with a word that demon X sounds like the, the, like a kind of memory that you would buy for a gaming computer, non-negotiable code for threat. So it's anti-vaxxer, right. Or domestic violent extremist or insurrectionist or anything, you know, something along those lines. Trump in that sense, I think has been an, an enormous boon to the intelligence services. Um, they've been able to say, Hey, if you, if you code as somebody who sides with Trump, um, you know, essentially they've created, um, what I like to call it like the sort of one villain theory of the universe, which is if you're on Trump's side, that means you're on Putin's side, which means you're also on Assad's side. You're on Orban's side. You're on the side of domestic violence. And Xi somehow will end up in that mix too, right? Exactly. It's all Wait, Xi Jinping. Wait, what? They, I thought they, they try to paint the, the Democrats generally as being in cahoots with the Chinese. Did, it's like right? an edible arrangement, right? I mean, you can just keep adding flavors or something. Yeah. And rationally, it's a crazy conspiracy theory, but um, they actually. But it's not really a conspiracy do. theory. It's, uh, that, it's that a lot of people who really do like Trump will tend to be apologists for Orban and, um, and Putin. Not all of them, but it's, it goes together and often enough that, you know, it goes together, you know, I don't know what to say here. Denialist and ban and, and deamplify people based on ideas like that. Uh, so. um, you know, we're talking in uh, Memphis where Freedom Fest is, you're speaking there, RFK Jr., Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is speaking. Um, one of the things that's interesting about RFK, we've reason has talked to him and we've critiqued him and all of this, but he self-consciously says he is following a lot of Trump's playbook. Like he, you know, he- Actually, I, I some, of the crit, some of the critique from Reason Magazine against uh, RFK Jr. has been scathing and quite good. Review with him where he said, you know, he misunderstood Trump's appeal. He was very anti-Trump, but like th now he's starting to understand why people looked at Trump seriously and he wants to kind of grab some of that. What, you know, what is going on? Like, why do people like Trump and now RFK Jr.? What, what are they giving to people that they're not getting uh, out? Lies. Traditional candidates. I don't think it's that big of a mystery. I mean, the, the very first time that I saw Trump in person, I remember having the thought 20 minutes into his speech, this is going to work. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know if he was going to win, um, but what he was doing was scoring. You could yeah. feel it in the audience. And why was that? Well, America, since 2008 especially, um, had become incredibly dysfunctional. We had had a, a massive financial collapse where the uh, elite and wealthy class had been completely bailed out when a lot of them should have gone to jail. Um, and everybody else sort of paid the bill, including millions of people who got thrown out of their homes you know, in some cases justifiably, but in some cases not. And you add that to the, you know, the ongoing wars in the Middle East. There were lots of vets in Trump's crowds, you know, who had gripes about all kinds of things. Um, yeah. And Trump picked up on anger at institutional America that I think had a legitimate basis. If you've read Martin Gurry's book, yeah, The yeah. Revolt of the Public, 
he predicted this before Trump came on the scene. He, he said, people are going to be pissed about all these different things. And all it takes is somebody who's tuned into that. And my only uh, concern about Trump was that he was going to promise a lot, but not really deliver. He was going to be a fake reformer. So if somebody were to come along and be a, you know, a real reformer, if they were actually going to try to do something about some of these things, that would probably have a lot of appeal to the public. Do you think RFK is that person? No. I think he's more honest than Donald Trump. I think, um, you know, the, the people that he surrounded himself. So what's with. interesting about RFK Jr. is that the more people learn about him, the, 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 less, the, the less well he does in uh, polling. Are That's a bad trajectory to be Real on. politicians. I think they actually care about um, a lot of these issues. Trump, for me, was a master at the appearance side of the game, right? right. He was just so good at visual politics and um, virality and all these things that people didn't understand very well back then. But he wasn't a policy wonk. He wasn't staying up at night reading position papers. Um, you know, with Kennedy, it's still unknown, I would say, you know, what, how sincere he is, what, what he's really up to. I think we have to get to know him a little bit better. Um, with, I know, heard an interesting conspiracy theory about RFK Jr. that he's actually, uh, he's actually running to spoil Trump. I don't believe this, but it's an interesting conspiracy theory that he's, <clears throat> gonna, he's running technically in the primary as a Democrat, but then he's going to run third party, like, a, like Peace and Freedom or some shit. And take a lot, take votes away from Trump on the vaccine issue. I don't believe this is the case, but it's an interesting conspiracy theory, and it it doesn't require a whole lot of assumptions to believe it. We'll see how it shakes out. I think it's a low probability event, uh, but the lower probability event is him being Trump's uh, VP pick. He's also coming onto the scene post COVID. Um, you know, and Trump occupied a weird space during COVID, mm -hmm. right? Because he was kind of like. Uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I have experts, um, but, you know, uh, he was criticized for not implementing a single policy, which in the end may have been better. But then he also, you know, he did Operation Warp Speed, which actually worked to get vaccines out quickly. They didn't come quick before the election, which he's obviously still pissed about. But he's also kind of an anti-vaxxer. How if 2008 was Trump's, Trump's maybe an anti-vaxxer unless he can take credit for the vaccine. Like, okay, you know, American institutions, people are like, fuck it. We're, you know, these, these, these are not working for us. How much worse is it post COVID? Do you think? I think it's a lot worse post COVID. COVID has added to the dynamic that 2008, Iraq, yeah. um, WMDs, all that stuff. Even the 2000 election where we couldn't really decide yeah that too right you add that on top of well except that the supreme court decided that and um yeah the supreme court decided that and al gore bowed out as soon as the supreme court ruled he bowed out graciously COVID has a whole long list of things that have added to middle america's grievances beginning with the fact that it, it it increasingly looks like they lied to us about the origins. Of no, it doesn't increasingly look like that. The only place it increasingly looks like that is on fucking Substack with all these galaxy brain takes about it. Um, the, the overall consensus among infectious disease specialists and virologists hasn't changed much. 
the disease. I don't think it's changed at all. Uh, for some pretty weak reasons, maybe. Um, you know, they were trying to cover up some research they were doing. Uh, that's just that's not, this is just bullshit. Like right here, this is just straight up bullshit. And this is why people don't like Matt Taibbi is because <clears throat> he's like, an earlier version of him would have called this bullshit when he was working for Rolling Stone. One of the things he would have been on was calling this bullshit and talking about who was uh, funding the misinformation and who was spreading it and um and what the what the consensus was it would have been a very matt taibbi story actually prior thing one um that's looking increasingly likely at the very least they excluded the possibility of that no no that was never the case you can go read paper after paper on this all of the papers they hedge because that's what scientific papers do when there's uncertainty they hedge they say, well, you know, we can't rule this out entirely, but all the evidence we have points in this other direction. Okay. They, people like Matt Taibbi pull out the, we can't rule this out part. <laughs> They're like, look, smoking gun. It's what fucking Paul Watson and Alex Jones have done their whole careers. Illegitimately. And that used, I mean, that was where the government was telling Twitter and Facebook at all, like, don't run this stuff or they're squelch it. Right, exactly. Squelch it. Yeah, that's right. I didn't see any lab leak shit on Twitter or Facebook at all. Not even every day, the whole time. Um, then there was, you know, this whole idea of tying anti-vaccine um, sentiment to anti-mandate sentiment. Right. Right. And they consciously blurred the lines about that. No, 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 no. The anti-vaccine movement consciously blurred those lines. And then the lines were blurred because they were blurred. Well, I did a story about Loudoun County, Virginia, when, you know, the Republicans won the gubernatorial election there. And there were people there who were furious at the way they had been portrayed in the media um, as racists or anti-vaxxers. Really, they wanted their kids to go back to school because they had done their own research online they found the kids weren't really right. at risk they had done their own research oh dear yeah this is i'm sorry i'm sorry there's a version of matt taibbi from about 10 or 12 years ago who there's would have this is unrecognizable what you're seeing here and their kids weren't learning anything and it was a burden on them personally right so there's a million things like this that have added to ordinary people's um, dissatisfaction and, and again with covid there's the additional complicating factor of kids being involved like once you know pe people feel strongly but once once there's something about their kids they go and once it be and it became clear pretty early on that kids were not affected and yet they were the ones but they could spread it like someone just said in chat yeah you don't have to be affected by something to give it to someone else whose lives were most clearly upended by this, right? By lockdowns and one. Where are you? Nobody was locked down. Not them. And in the United States, no one was locked down. I went outside every day. Like vaccines. Are you an anti-COVID vaxxer? Are you no. anti-mandate? Are you pro-mandate, pro-vaccine or? I'm anti-mandate for sure, you know? Um, and but mandated by who and for what reason in what context? You know, my wife's a doctor. I'm pretty okay. reliably convinced that vaccines have been a good thing overall in, in, in the world. Um, I, yeah. You know, I, I, I'm not a scientist. This is one of the reasons why I stayed away from the stories, because yeah. this is not my ex area of expertise. But um, I, I do think lockdowns have been bad. Uh, I do think the Well, it's a good thing we didn't do those. Um, lied about 
the threat to kids. And I don't understand why they had to do that. Nobody did that. Uh, I'm not. I'm not so sure about the efficacy of va- vaccinating children at all. Um, you know, this recent um, Missouri v. Biden case involves some doctors who just said some very logical things, right. like if there's any risk at all with um, this vaccine, even if it's infinitesimal, it's probably more than the risk of sending your kid to school. Um, what? Because you know this thing doesn't really hurt kids, and they tossed them off Twitter for that, or they tossed them off Facebook for that. That's no, but why crazy. are they suing Joe Biden? Wait, I don't understand. The thing he's describing doesn't make any sense. He's like, these, this lawsuit, the ex-person V. Biden? So they, they got tossed off at Twitter and Facebook? What? You know, and I think people see that as crazy. The, uh, you know, the other big story that paralleled COVID and the lockdowns, obviously, was George Floyd and kind of racial reckoning and whatnot. You had, it was it 2019 when you wrote the Eric Garner book? Uh, or earlier yeah, than 18, that? I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, which is, a, you know, before the lockdown and things like that. But how, you know, obviously, uh, you know, the George Floyd story was huge. And it was, you know, again, it probably wouldn't have been as big if we weren't in lockdown and whatnot. But we weren't in lockdown. Eric Garner, who was I hate when they use this term. Something. I hate this. this I, know, I know it's like shorthand for you know, oh, like some, a lot of people had to work from home and some businesses were closed and whatever, but a lockdown, lockdown, like it, it would mean that you can't leave your home. It's not even like a shelter in place. It's, it is a, it is a step beyond a shelter in place. A lockdown implies like enforcement, the use of force, the potential use of force. And that was just not happening. Selling loose cigarettes in Staten Island and then died while the police were arresting him. Um, where, where do you think we are in terms of kind of criminal justice reform as well as race relations? Um, is, are we better than 2019 or, or, you know, or, or Eric Garner time, or is it worse or is it just kind of like an open wound that we never quite can close or heal? I don't know. I mean, I haven't spent a lot of time in the last couple of years looking at local policing. I did for many years spend a lot of time in the courts and yeah, but now you're a substack. Uh, now you're a stenographer for a billionaire doing sort of street reporting the george floyd summer was very frustrating for me personally because the big lesson that i came away from with from the george floyd story was that broken windows policing had massively increased the number of contacts between the ordinary citizen and police which in turn resulted in a lot of these situations going wrong and people dying and the one thing that's fixable in this whole milieu um, is we can change that. We can change statistics-based policing. We don't have to order people to stop, you know, mm-hmm. 20 people a month or whatever it is. And it never came up. I mean, it was it, it, it was like it was purposely excluded from the floor. It didn't coverage. seem to be serving anybody's interests, right? Right. Everybody abstracted well, immediately. That to- didn't come up because, like... Th- th- that's obvious you're you're racist you're not racist or something right because it wasn't it 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 didn't have a tie to um america's racist past uh wait what you know broken windows policing and the removal of it doesn't have a tie to america's racist past did this motherfucker just say that this motherfucker just said that i can't believe what i just heard 
tendency to, towards white supremacy. Now, there are obviously enormous racial overtones to police brutality, and I detailed a lot of them in, in you know, my book. Um, but it's only part of the picture. I mean, it's, this is just the same thing as like Trump coverage. Uh, people picked one thing, and that became the, the entire lens uh, through which they looked at that story and they ignored all these other you know shades of gray and complex sounds like this is a problem of this man's scope he didn't see any of the more systemic critiques that were going on cities um i probably didn't do a good job of making them myself but that's left audiences um less informed than they were before uh, as a result um part i got uh, to kind of wrap up one of the things i find most interesting about your your kind of post mainstream media output uh, and you've started uh, a podcast or you where you talk with Walter Kern the mm. novelist and a lot of what you're doing is you're talking about stuff like uh, you know Mark Twain's the man that corrupted Hadleyburg or you know classic uh, stories American stories etc what's the goal there and what has the response been part of it is just because Walter uh, Kern and I um, both like talking about books we don't get to do it very much we've decided to experiment what would happen if we did oh that's like that's probably like bizarro world if books could kill right and um what we found is people are so tired of the relentless sort of binary nature of media these days team x versus team y team blue versus red um and it's divisive it's anti-intellectual um you don't get to talk about um, anything interesting in these shows it's always an argument and it's a dumb argument that just never ends and, and i mean this was part of the uh, i mean this is the basis of hate inc your book about what's the subtitle why today's media make us hate each other yeah exactly, exactly. i think we always hated and each other i think it's it's a, kind of a bad product unless you're um unless you have some kind of amazing breaking news that's about to come out why would you watch it? I mean, it just makes you depressed. Uh, what we found is when we talked about these stories, we're getting into all these um, issues. And also, we're also finding that a lot of these old stories that, um, you know, maybe dust covered in people's imaginations, they're amazingly relevant today. You know, the uh, E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops um, has a lot of relevance to. Can you do culture. a quick summary? What, what's the plot of that? The plot of that, Ian Forster um, imagined a world where people no longer had to do anything. They lived underground. Um, machines basically did everything for them. They were t told that if they went outside, they would die immediately. Uh, there were legends about that. So, uh, But one day the machine starts to malfunction because the people who... Um, are taking care of the machine they've started to die off and so the thing has started to malfunction and people slowly realize that uh they've been had that it's actually Wait, isn't that the plot of a jamiroquai video uh, a lot of the legends they've been um told to keep them afraid and keep them indoors and keep them uh, from acting out on their own are, are fake and that's very true of internet culture i think we you know we're a lot of us are captured by our neuroses now right we don't have as much face-to-face -face contact with people and um it's it, it's very relevant today you yeah. know and and it was so much fun talking about that and we got a, a great response from people who you know who are saying 
Um, there's a whole world of thought out there that they're telling us doesn't exist anymore, but it, it, it is out there, you know, and people are learning to enjoy it again. I think we're going to leave it there. Matt Taibbi, thanks for talking to Reza. Well, at the beginning of this, I thought that there was going to be a lot more conflation <clears throat> of the, uh, the idea of like cancel culture with like actual government censorship. And we didn't get a lot of that, but I think it's because libertarian Fonzie, uh, generally, um, pushed the, uh, interview in other directions. Uh, I don't. Libertarian Fonzie, generally okay. He's okay. I don't, I don't agree with his politics or whatever, but he seems like a nice enough guy. <laughs> he's generally not out there fucking posting a bunch of weird racist shit and whatnot. So he's a pretty good interviewer. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it didn't, they didn't get that much into the Twitter files, which I was interested in hearing. They sort of mentioned it in passing. Um, any of the real kind of controversial stuff that Matt has been into uh, got mentioned in passing. And I, I don't know if that was, you know, by design so that, that they, the two didn't clash or if they just didn't want to do that. If they just, I don't know if it was like one of those, isn't it great that we're able to sit here and have this conversation type of things. I don't know. But, um, that was boring. I mean, I, I, you know, Matt Taibbi is generally full of shit. I, I, I actually really liked a lot of his earlier work and it's like kind of unfortunate to see him go down this sort of contrarianism for contrarianism sake rabbit hole. But it's alluring, and um, a lot of a lot of people have done it, and um, there's a lot of money there. A lot of money there. People in the chat have mentioned uh, Peter Thiel. I don't I don't know for sure, but uh, Matt Taibbi smells a little bit like Peter Thiel's money. <laughs> and I guess with that, I'm going to close the show out. Thanks everybody for listening to the podcast. Uh, if you are listening to the podcast, make sure you uh, sign up for our Twitch. That's Twitch.tv/EchoplexMedia. We're a great place to land if you don't generally watch Twitch. Our community is a little older, a little more mature. Um, and uh, yeah, it's fun here. You can support this project at uh, patreon.com slash echoplex or at eplex.store. This month we're running a promo on all our Halloween items. Uh, Halloween 2023, all caps in the fucking, uh, the, that during checkout, we'll get you a free shipping on any of our Halloween items. And they're great. The Media Wench did a great job this year on the artwork for that. So shout out to the Media Wench. Uh, she hates this show, so she'll never hear me say that. Um, anyway, this is Boomers by Periscope, and we'll be back with Red Light.
Can't get enough Echoplex and want to keep the conversation going with the hosts and community when we're not live? Then join our Discord server at discord.me slash Echoplex. We have text channels, voice channels, meme repositories, and a whole section of screenshots that we don't even remember where they came from. Come join the Now Space on Discord at discord.me slash Echoplex.